conclude our series on the Beatitudes, we will continue, Lord willing, to go through the Gospel of Matthew. But we come to the final Beatitude today. We turn in God's Word to both Matthew 5, and I'll be reading verses 10 through 12, and then Isaiah 53, 7 through 9. Hear now the word of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. Riding on a donkey, a small, silly animal, with your feet probably dragging along the road, is not the way you would expect a king to enter a city. And yet that's exactly how Jesus entered Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday in what is called the triumphal entry. The people didn't understand it, did they, at the time? They thought in terms of the kingdom and salvation that Jesus would bring, this is back to the glory days. I'm thinking of a song, glory days. That's what they were thinking. David, Solomon, united kingdom, wealth, military. That's what we have here. They didn't yet see with eyes of faith that Jesus was coming to suffer and to die and then be raised and exalted. And dear Christian, the pattern of the life of our Savior is the pattern of the life of his followers. Suffering now, glory in the age to come. Today we see the eighth and final beatitude. The others lead up to this. The others talk about the work of Christ in the hearts of his disciples. This one talks about what we can expect as his disciples. There's a shift here. He's saying, Christian, in some way you don't fit in this world. Following me, Jesus says, as your Lord, will mean trials, tribulation, and suffering. And he says this, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. What does that mean? Well, first we want to look at what it doesn't mean. There can be misunderstandings here. The world says 
as we think about this idea of blessing and suffering. Blessed are those who are healthy, wealthy, and wise. Blessed are those who have a fat IRA, who are comfortable and who are not suffering. And there are churches who will teach that. That if you're really a Christian, life will go well. That everything will get better. And when you hear that, you say, what Bible are you reading from? Certainly not Matthew chapter 5. When Jesus gives the Beatitudes in Luke 6, he also includes woes, like W-O-E, meaning a curse. And he says, cursed are you when everyone thinks well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. There's a combination of false prophets and popularity in religion that has been going on not only today, but since the days of the Old Testament. The first person mentioned in Revelation 21 outside of the kingdom of God is the coward. And the false prophet is that, saying what everyone wants to hear, saying peace, peace, as we saw last week, when there is no peace. Jesus here is dividing the audience, as the Puritans used to say. What else is he not saying, however? Well, he's not talking here about sufferings in general. We all live in a fallen world. We all suffer afflictions. That's not his focus. He's not saying you suffer and are blessed in this way if you suffer because you're obnoxious (laughs) or because you're fanatical in a dishonoring to God way or rude or a nuisance or self-righteous or prideful. Sometimes Christians suffer not because they're Christians, but because they're now living as Christians. When Christians suffer for doing what God forbids, they're not experiencing Christian persecution. That's not this. First Peter talks about that. When you suffer, don't suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or, do you know what Peter adds? A meddler. Peter says that. What's a meddler? Someone who's nosy, who's sticking their face in other people's business, who is a busybody. Meddlers interfere. How many of you parents, when your child is misbehaving in a family gathering, are excited to hear at that moment advice from your siblings or other family or friends about discipline? I thought more people would laugh than that. That's a meddler, kind of sticking your nose in. It doesn't belong, not at that time. Jesus is also not saying you suffer if you're persecuted for a cause or if you have a martyr complex or if you're doing this for this particular reason. He's also not saying there's a blessing in itself in persecution. No, persecution happens because of the hostility of the human heart towards God. Persecution by itself is not blessed. There's a certain type of persecution, Jesus says, however, that is blessed. Secondly, it's being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Practicing righteousness, loved ones, means being like the Lord Jesus. So if you are persecuted because you are like Christ, you're blessed. And if you've been told that Christianity includes a life that doesn't include suffering or persecution, then you've been told a lie. 
of all the Beatitudes, this one, like the others, first and foremost describes Jesus himself. Do you remember that throughout this series? So as we think of our suffering, first we have to think, what did our Savior do? That's why I read from Isaiah 53, that throughout his life, not only his death, he was reviled, he was oppressed, he was afflicted. People said that he was the son of the devil or the child of an illegitimate union of a woman and a Roman soldier. They plotted throughout his life, how can we kill him? And finally, on the night of Thursday, after the Last Supper, as he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood, understanding what is in the cup the Father is giving him to drink, they got him, from their perspective. 600 Roman soldiers, led by Judas, come to the Garden to arrest the light of the world. They held him in custody. In Luke 22, you see that they're mocking him, torturing him, beating him, blaspheming him. They're playing this kind of perverse game of blind man's bluff where they blindfolded him and then they challenged him to say, who hit you? If you're really the son of God, why don't you tell me who that guy was? What's his name? Through the night, there are six trials three of them religious, three of them civil, a mockery of justice. And yet Isaiah 53 tells us three times how he responds. He did not open his mouth. Not before Caiaphas, not before Herod, who had long wanted to see him, and not before Pilate. He was reviled, but he did not revile in return. And as he's doing this, this is not a capitulation to weakness. This is deliberate control. He was not overpowered. He chose not to fight back. His flesh is ripped to shreds. Rods and sticks and whips and spikes. 700 years before the crucifixion, Isaiah says in both chapter 52 and 53, that he was so hideous in his appearance when he was beaten that men hid their faces from him. They didn't ask, who is this? They were asking, is this human? Loved ones, that is Jesus atoning for your sin. That is how you and I can be reconciled to a holy God. He's standing there in the judgment for sinners. Every wounding blow, every taunting word, he's paying the cost of our salvation. And then he was led to the slaughter like a lamb. All of human history is leading up to that point. And as the Lamb of God, Jesus, is slaughtered on the cross, that is the day of preparation. So the same time Jesus is dying, the priests would have been slaughtering lambs for the Passover all that day. Here is the new covenant Passover lamb. And what happens as he slaughtered, Isaiah says, is the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yes, it was physically torturous, but even more than that, he absorbed the justice and the wrath of God for every one of his people. 
Every one of your sins and my sins and all the sins of his people was laid on him. Our mocking, our pride, our lust, our rage-filled anger, it was poured out on the Lamb of God, the sinless one. And that's why he didn't protest. As Sinclair Ferguson says, he understands that what is happening in the crucifixion is the due process of the law of God against anyone who comes into the presence of God bearing sin. He takes these charges, of which he is innocent, of which we're guilty, charges of blasphemy. We blaspheme God. We made ourselves the center of the universe. And he's pleading guilty in your place that you, by faith in him, might be not only guiltless, but righteous before God. My sin transferred to him. His righteousness transferred to me. He becomes the ultimate obscenity, the incarnation of the divine curse of God. Loved ones, on the cross, he's reversing the curse. He's undoing what Adam did. And in John 19, it tells us it is finished. He accomplished your salvation. He completed the mission of redemption the Father sent him to do. At 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon, he presses his feet up against the spikes. He cries out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He wasn't a victim. That's a loud voice. He laid down his life. And the centurion who saw him die said, surely this man was the son of God. For us to understand what we are called on to suffer, we must first believe and trust in that suffering lamb of God for us. Isaiah says, who considered it? Meaning people saw it, and they still hear about it, but they dismiss it. In the lives of Christians, what causes this kind of persecution that Jesus talks about here? Our union with Christ. Nobody, as Van Dyke says, has ever been more hated than Jesus. Why is that? He's the perfect son of God. As John says, light has come into the world, but men love the darkness rather than the light. They hate the light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. They hate being exposed by the light. People hate Jesus not because he's evil, but because they are. And darkness hates the light. And if you are in Christ, you will be persecuted by the world because they hate Jesus. And you belong to Jesus. And you love what he loves. And you hate what he hates. Paul says this, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And you think, okay, that's great. Let's stop there. Paul doesn't stop there. Philippians 3.10. And the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. 
Union with Christ means a share in all that is Christ's. The rejection, the reviling, the persecution that is his. If we want to become like Christ in his death, that's what it means. That is persecution for righteousness' sake. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. He is the Son of God incarnate. He's the only mediator between God and man. When you say that and speak the truth in love by the Spirit, people will hate that message. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. They persecuted Christ, they will persecute you. You must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. What does that look like, third? The word persecute is found three times in Matthew 5, 10, 11, and 12. As Thomas Watson says, it's referring to two things. Persecution physically, by the hand, and verbally by the tongue. The word means to pursue or to chase aggressively. People will run you off. They will drive you from your home, your job, your friend, your church. They will run you out of town if needed. Persecution is stuff like arrests and jail, torture and beheadings and mutilations and stonings. Much wisdom is needed for Christians who live in parts of the world where this is happening. Should we stay or should we go? For missionaries and for others. Paul fled Damascus. And then Paul later on went to Jerusalem knowing what would happen. Persecution also happens verbally. Revile, the word means literally, as Steve Lawson says, to knock in your teeth. Picture that, kids. Maybe you had a baseball thrown and you misjudged it and it smacked you in the teeth. Knock it in, meaning throwing an insult in your face, ridiculing, dismissing, marginalizing. Reviling means attacking your character, your reputation, your values, what you believe. It may mean people just kind of pulling away from you, isolating you. They won't want anything to do with you. You'll be stigmatized. Jesus says, if you do that for my name, you're blessed. When they utter all kinds of evil against you for my name, you're blessed. False accusations. Exaggerating your words and your position. Making up charges against you. Misrepresenting you. Maligning you. Assigning false motives to you. Smiling to you as you sit there and stabbing you in the back when you're not in the room. The word slander comes from the word for devil. An accuser. To poison the minds of one person against another. They will say lies to you. It'll cost you your life, your kids, your job. In the first century, it certainly did. Derek Thomas says this, imagine you're a stonemason. First century world. You get a contract to build a temple to pagan gods. Would you do it? You're a tailor. You're asked to make robes for a priestess involved in pagan rituals. 
Would you do it? You're asked to make a cake for a homosexual wedding. Would you do it? What do you do when you're asked in your calling and work to do something that violates Scripture and a conscience that's bound by Scripture? Not a conscience bound by itself, but by the Word of God. What do you do? Socially, your friends are out to eat and they offer a drink to a pagan god. Do you join them? If you don't, you're ostracized. First century world, your spouse is not a believer. You want to tell your kids about the one true living God. Do you tell them? How about kids? Your mom and dad aren't believers. You're converted to Christ. Mom and dad are going to throw you out of the home. They're going to disown you. What happens? These are not just issues from 2,000 years ago, as you can see. R.C. Sproul was in seminary talking about the nature of human sin. Some of the professors heard him talk about sin as an offense against a holy God. They slandered him. They ridiculed him. John Gerstner invites Sproul into his office. He says, Roberto. That was Gerstner's nickname for Sproul after Roberto Clemente, the 3,000-hit Hall of Fame Pittsburgh Pirate baseball player. Roberto, blessed are you. You're experiencing Matthew 5. They are persecuting you for righteousness' sake. It can happen there. Martin Luther said, any time the gospel is faithfully preached and the law, both, without distortion, there will be conflict in a church, in a family. Charles Spurgeon was stressed out. He was getting criticism. He was depressed. His wife took a piece of paper, printed the Beatitudes on it, tacked it above his wall where he was sleeping so that the reality of this would saturate his mind morning and evening. Everyone who lives righteously in Christ will be persecuted. There are no exceptions. This is changing us in the way we think about the Christian life, loved ones, in America and all over the world. Discipleship means following a crucified Savior. Jesus says, so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What comes to mind when he says that in Matthew 5.12? I bet a lot of things, kids. From reading the Bible with mom and dad and Sunday school and catechism, Hebrews 11 jumps to mind for sure. In Hebrews 11, it talks about danger, toils, snares. It talks about what the prophets went through. You can go back even beyond that, really, to the first children of Adam and Eve. Abel was persecuted and killed by his brother. Joseph was persecuted by his own brothers. Do you see how this happens in families sometimes, within the visible covenant community sometimes? Hebrews 11.35 says some were tortured. It's a reference to the Maccabean period, about 160 B.C., when literally they had a drum where they would tie you up to it, your legs and your arms stretched as far as they could go, they would flip you around on it, and they would pummel you and torture you. When Pastor Fickert Bocek was here, 
He told us some of this. Not literally a drum, but he was tortured and told to deny Christ, and then they would set you free. When you read Hebrews 11, I think Jeremiah comes to mind, the prophet. Tortured, chained, imprisoned, thrown into a pit, scourgings, beatings, and stonings. That's what happened to Jeremiah and Zechariah and Stephen, the first Christian New Testament martyr. That word martyr means faithful witness unto death. Hebrews 11.37 says they were sawn in two. Non-biblical sources say that's referring to Isaiah, the prophet. They were killed by the sword. John the Baptist was beheaded. A different Herod beheaded James, the apostle. And think of Paul. In your mind, Paul persecuting the church was there when Stephen was stoned. By the grace of God, converted. Christian, pray for those who persecute you. Remember that? In this sermon, don't forget that. Pray that God will convert them. Pray that they will come to Christ. Love your enemies. Don't forget that. Paul, the persecutor of the church, is converted. He later is beheaded by Nero. Peter is crucified on a cross upside down. You say, what does that have to do with me? If you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, you are in great company. When wicked men despise you for Christ's sake, heaven applauds. There's something going on in the heavenly realms that we don't see yet. Revelation 6, the first nine verses. In verses 1 to 8, there are four different riders in Revelation 6. They're released as Jesus opens the first four scrolls of heaven. And they're telling you what life will be like between the first and second comings of Christ. Don't be alarmed when this happens, Jesus is saying. This is what you can expect. War, violence, disease, pestilence, famine, economic calamity, and death. At the same time, there's a fifth scroll The Lord opens this scroll telling you not what's going on on earth, but what's happening in heaven. They're not disassociated. What's happening in heaven, as Jesus opens the fifth scroll, is that John sees under the altar the souls of those who have been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out, O Lord, how long before you avenge our blood? And then they were told, in Revelation 6, to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves have been. There's a connection, Revelation says, between martyrdom, the Great Commission, and the return of Jesus. That what is happening as Christians are dying for professing faith in Christ is the word of God is going forth, the nations are hearing it, and God's elect are being saved. Yes, the judgment will come. Yes, the blood will not be forgotten of those who die. 
but you see this all throughout the history of the church. In the first century, at times, things were peaceful. At times, persecution was very centered locally for some people, and at times it was empire-wide. The Roman emperor Nero had pitch poured on Christians and set the Christians on fire as he used them as torches to light the night. Nero, who killed Paul, sowed Christians alive into the skins of wild animals and set his hunting dogs after them and they ripped them apart, eyes torn out, body parts cut off, roasted, and killed. By God's grace, they persevered. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Polycarp had a connection with the apostle John, served at the church in Smyrna, where Pastor Fickred is serving in Turkey today. At age 86, In 155 AD, the hour came for him to be brought into the Roman Colosseum. This is from Fox's Book of Martyrs. He was brought there on a donkey. Let that sink in for a bit. He was mocked, and at first he didn't open his mouth. They said to him, say that Caesar is Lord. Make an offering to Caesar, we'll let you go free. That's all you have to do. Walk out of here. He said, if you want to hear about Christianity, set a day and I'll tell you. We're going to send the wild animals after you. Do it, he said. We're going to set you on fire. He said, age 86, as they're beating him and pummeling him at the same time, he said, setting me on fire for an hour. What is that compared to the eternal hell of fire? They tell him, swear away with the atheists. The Romans said that Christians were atheists because they weren't worshiping the Roman emperor as God. Polycarp turns around to the stadium with people filled in there. He says, away with the atheists. They light him on fire. As he dies, he says, Father, I bless you that you have counted me worthy to receive my portion among the number of martyrs. In the days of the Reformation, we're again reminded that those who claim to be Christian, they're not, sometimes bring the worst persecution on God's people. It was London, February 1554. Lady Jane Grey had served England for two weeks. She was 16 years old. When she was a young girl, she was taught the word of God. Now, as she's facing death for confessing Christ, the Bible that she held dear as a child took prominence in her life. The Lord Jesus was her treasure. She's 16. She writes a letter to her younger sister. Dear sister, live to die, that by death you may enter eternal life and enjoy the life Christ gained for you by his death. Don't think that just because you're young, your life will be long. The young and the old die as God wills. Defy the world. Despise the sinful flesh. 
Defy the devil. Delight yourself only in the Lord. Seven years later, it's 1561, the Belgic Confession is completed. One of the confessions we, as a church, believe is part of the three forms of unity, the faithful summary of Scripture. Belgic means Belgium and Netherlands in that day. Guido de Bray is the primary author. The Spanish Roman Catholic authorities are bringing down persecution hard. He says, I'm going to obey the government in all things lawful, but I'll offer my back to stripes, my, my tongue to knives, my mouth to gags, my whole body to fire, rather than to deny the truth that is in this confession. In 1567, he writes a love letter to his wife from prison. At age 47, he is hanged, pushed off the scaffold, as he exhorts the crowd to be faithful to the Bible and respectful to the civil magistrates. During the same time, French Protestants called Huguenots were led to the stake by the thousands, singing the Psalms, including Psalm 16 that we sang today. To stop them from singing, they would cut their tongues out of their mouths. In 1647, Richard Cameron was born. He preached the gospel as a covenanter. He was ordered to recant and deny Christ. He wouldn't. So they cut off his head and his hands. And in the even more cruel display, they sent the head and the hands to his father, who was also in prison, for confessing Christ. His father says, I know them. They're my dear sons. It is the Lord. Good is the will of the Lord, who cannot wrong me, but has made goodness and mercy to flow all the days of our life. You hear this, you read this, you say, how is that possible? As you suffer for Christ, Satan will want you to think God has abandoned you. But in great suffering on earth, there is great support from heaven. 1 Peter 4.11-14 through 14 says, The Spirit will sustain you in your suffering and in your hour of death. God will grant you a measure of the presence of his Spirit when you are reviled or tortured or killed for the name of Christ. And it will rest on you at that right time. Corey Tenboom asked about this. As she was thinking about how weak she was and the Germans who were threatening her. How am I going to stand in that moment? And her dad said, when you're going to take a journey, do I give you your ticket three days or three weeks early? Or just as you get on the train? She said, as I get on the train. So God, he says, will give you special strength to stand in the face of death when you need it. That's how Dietrich Bonhoeffer died. April 9, that's yesterday, 1945. He's praying on the floor as he's about to be killed and executed. And two weeks later, the camp is liberated. Richard Vermbrand was raised as an atheist. Later in life, he and his wife Sabina converted to Christ by the grace of God. 
They were tortured by the Nazis. Her family was killed by the Nazis. They were later tortured by the communists. He spent 14 years in prison, horrible tortures. By the grace of God, he survived. And in 1967, he found a voice of the martyrs, which to this day continues to tell of Christians suffering all over the world for the name of Christ. What's happening today? Voice of the Martyrs, Open Doors Ministries will say, more Christians have died in the last 120 years for naming the name of Christ than in the previous 1900 years combined. What do we do in response? Fourth, how should we then live? Pray for your persecutors. Love your enemies. Remember what Jim Elliott said. Jim Elliott, age 29 in 1956, brought the gospel to the Warani peoples in South America. He was called by God to go there. He was martyred there, but before he went, he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's our focus, Christians. Whether you're living in Minnetonka today or in Rome under Nero, how should we then live? Ask some questions. Am I a people pleaser? Am I afraid to speak up? Do I want everyone just to think well of me? Do I seek persecution by being obnoxious? Am I willing to suffer to bring Christ and his gospel to a dying world? It might be in your classroom, kids. It might be in your neighborhood. Someone might say, you don't believe that stuff, do you? You don't believe the Bible is God's inerrant, inspired, infallible word? You don't believe Jesus is the son of God who died? He rose from the dead physically, bodily? Do you believe that? How do we respond? By the grace of God, not being ashamed, but glorifying God. Ask this question, does it draw me nearer to faith in Christ as I face opposition and hardship for naming the name of Christ? Or does it send me away? Embrace this as God's will for your life. Peter says every Christian should expect this. It was communist Russia and a group of Christians were meeting secretly to worship in a warehouse. As they are worshiping, the doors are thrown open. The police enter. The Russian troops say, everyone who's not a Christian here needs to leave. We will deal with the Christians after you leave. In that moment, half the congregation left. The officer said, lock the doors. They did. Then the officer said, we wanted to find out who the true Christians are. We become believers in Jesus. Can you tell us about the gospel? Let us encourage each other to remain faithful and true to our confession of faith in Christ, even when it's difficult. It is difficult, and it may get more difficult. In America and around the world, it's costly to name the name of Christ. Pray for endurance, that we would be strengthened with all power, for endurance with joy, 
and patience. How do we respond? Pray for those who are in prison. Remember them. Pick up Voice of the Martyrs out here. Go online. As a family, pray through these Christian peoples who are suffering in these nations. Don't forget them. Because when one part of the body of Christ suffers, we all suffer. And remember your heavenly reward. We exalt, Matthew says, in persecution for Christ's sake. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials, James says. Colossians says, I rejoice in my sufferings for Christ's sake. Paul and Silas are in jail in the middle of the night. They're beaten. And what are they doing? They're singing praises to God. Peter and John are flogged. They leave rejoicing that they are worthy to suffer for the name. Pray, God, make me like that. Because by nature, we're not. Our sinful flesh, by nature, is cowardly afraid of what people think or might do, and we retreat. God, give me courage and boldness, steadfastness and endurance. Help me not to be bitter or to lose heart or to be discouraged when I suffer in any of these ways. Help me to look to the reward. Paul says the reward is great. It's not small. Your life is patterned after Christ, suffering now. Glory in the age to come. The momentary sufferings are not worth comparing to that eternal weight of glory. And when you suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. What is the blessing? It brings you back to the first beatitude. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. The reward is the new heavens and new earth. The reward is Jesus himself enjoying him, being with him, that where Christ is, we will be also. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we long for the day when we will see Jesus and worship him in his glorious presence. We cry out as those do in Revelation 6, how long, O Lord, We long for the day when there will be no more sorrow or sighing or tears. Unmixed joy and glory and purity and wonder. What a reward, all of grace. What a reward earned for us by Jesus. What a gospel and a savior we have. Oh Lord, we walk by faith. One day we will see you face to face. Preserve us, strengthen us for your namesake. In Jesus' name, all God's people say,